I don't even like using the term functioning alcoholic because you're not actually functioning. Sure, you might be existing. Sure, you might be doing your job, but are you actually functioning? No, because you're not functioning emotionally. You're not functioning psychologically. Welcome to the Let's Start Health podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Haynes. We live in a noisy world, and this space is intended to bring you clarity, enrich your bank of wellness knowledge, and inspire you to kickstart your journey to healing body, mind, and soul. I'll be interviewing industry professionals and bringing you raw, real, and personal stories of healing through gut health, intuitive eating, and the power of the abundance mindset. Thank you so much for tuning in and getting curious. Your journey to healing starts now. Scott, thank you really so much for being here today and for taking the time to share with us your story and your vulnerability. I really have witnessed how powerful vulnerability is in one's journey to healing. And I'd love just to hand the microphone right on over to you and to share with us who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, so uh, my name is Scott Leeper. I'm a, a life coach, published author, and speaker. I do some, some volunteer work for uh, the addiction community, but I'm actually moving into uh, uh, business coaching, believe it or not. But I absolutely help with uh, the recovery community, and part of that is uh, my book, Drowning an Addiction, Take or Swim, and uh, I'm sure we'll be getting into that. But, you know, a lot of this is stemming from... Um, you know, going off the, the premise of your podcast and, and where people start with tragedy and understanding that there's life on the other side of their tragedy or their, their challenges. Um, that's exactly how my uh, story began. And, you know, a lot of that stems from in 2012, I took my dad off life support. I watched him take his last breath because of an alcohol addiction and years of self-hatred. And so, you know, that's essentially where this all started. Wow. I mean, I really, it, it makes me pause for just a moment because I can't imagine, I can imagine, and I'm sure that was extremely painful for you to experience. And you mentioned that he was on life support after years of addiction and self-hatred. So I'd love to shift a little bit into asking you, what was it like then being the child of an alcoholic? Honestly, you know, I was when I was first affected, I was probably two years old. And that's when my mom and my, my dad got a divorce because my mom has actually found uh, various pills wrapped in a tinfoil wrapper in his breast pocket in the laundry. And, um, you know, her, her problem with that was if I found those and I swallowed them, I might not be here right now. So uh, that was her final straw and told him that, uh, you know, she's going to her parents for the weekend and that he needs to be out by the weekend. And that was the first time, and, and, and obviously at two years old, it's, it's difficult for a two-year-old to really understand what's actually happening, but obviously my parents get a divorce, therefore um, I've been affected. You know, and honestly, during my childhood, I went, you know, I'd, I'd spend, you know, every other weekend with him or whatever, and, and then it, it really wasn't too many issues. He seemed to get his act straight, and uh, he went back to school. Um, at one point, he, he finished a degree in, in uh, medical technology. Eventually, switched careers to become uh, a computer guru of sorts. For basically, uh, he he ended up becoming a teacher for IT, and he taught students how to, you know, how to handle the hardware and the software of computers. And the thing is, like a lot of the a lot of the people that came to his memorial saw the stack of uh, certifications he had. Uh, in computers, which is blown away that this man had that much knowledge uh, about computers. And so, you know, growing up, there really wasn't too big of an issue. It wasn't until uh, in my adult years that the, the effects started to take place again. And a lot of that had to do with, I mean, just stupid stuff. Like, we didn't talk for two and a half years over, like, 250 bucks. And it's just pretty trivial, trivial stuff at the time. But, um, you know, the real effect came, you know, there at the end. And, um, you know, I was, I was stationed at Camp Lejeune. I was an active duty Marine at the time. And, um, you know, my dad was, um, at one point he peaked blood and then he was transported by ambulance to a hospital in Anderson, Indiana, 
and they realized that this problem was much bigger than what they were equipped for. And so he was airlifted from Anderson to uh, uh, Indianapolis, and I was immediately admitted to the to the ICU because he had uh, his liver was failing, his kidneys were failing. Just I mean, he had what's called esophageal varices, which is varicose veins in his throat uh, from years of drinking. And, um, you know, but I'll take it a step back. You know, I I also mentioned self-hatred. And after we had finally made amends when we started talking again after those two and a half years, um, he was supposed to meet me at my sister's house. And uh, and he didn't show up. Now, you know, he literally lives a half a block down the street across the street. And so I walked down there and knocked on his door. When he answered, he was already three sheets to the wind. He was already drunk out of his mind. And, um, you know, I walked in and I kind of took, took stock at what I saw. That was the first time I'd seen that little apartment he was living in. And I look around and the place literally looked like a recycling plant. There were empty alcohol containers everywhere. And I mean stacks of them, literally as high as the kitchen counter. And I, I, I kind of got mad, and I turned around and looked at him, and I said, Dan, what the hell are you doing? And at this point, he broke down like my, like my seven-year-old son would, and starts bawling, and he says, look at me. He says, I'm fat, I'm nasty, nobody loves me, nobody wants me. This is my, rea- this is my escape. And so that was the first time I really had you know, an, an inside look at um, you know, what somebody with a substance abuse issue is dealing with uh, internally. Um, you know, on the outside, those of us that don't have a, a, an addiction, you know, we just see it as a, as a choice. Well, they, they choose to put that bottle to their lips or they choose to put the needle in their arm, whatever the case is. But that was the first time that I really had um, an inside view of the mentality of, of an addict. And, you know, he, he absolutely hated himself. Now, everybody around him didn't see that because I compare him to Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And he lo- his best medicine was he loved making people laugh. The problem was, as soon as there was nobody around, the demons came out, and he hated himself. And um, you know, and again, a lot like how Robin Williams was. So, um, so that's really when I first saw the the inside the inside mentality of, of an addict. Now, going back to his trip to the hospital. So in the hospital, you know, for, once again, you know, as soon as he got admitted to ICU, he was actually still coherent and he was making the nurses laugh. Mm-hmm. But it was within an hour he slipped into a coma. And so my sister called me and she says, hey, dad's in the ICU. I just got a call from the hospital. He just slipped into a coma. Um, things aren't looking good. And so I told her, I was like, all right, well, um, you know, here I'm trying to process it and I'm, you know, several states away and I said, just, you know, just keep me posted. Let me know, you know, if I need to come up or whatever. And she goes, no, you need to come up now. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think it was like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I forget what actual day it was, but, um, it was probably May 15th, May 16th, somewhere in there. Um, so we get up there and to basically make a long story short, the day he died, well, I'll, t- I'll take you to the day before he died. So it was just, we had made a couple trips from, from Indianapolis to South Bend area where we're from, because uh, my wife was six months pregnant at the time. So, you know, see, we, we brought her up here so she could see family and that kind of thing. And me and my sister went back down. And when, when we went back down the day before he died, he came out of his coma briefly. And, you know, he's mentioning Jenny's name and Jenny's talking to Jenny's my sister. Mm. And, and he looks at me and he, he kind of lifts Ashley's name, which Ashley's my wife. And which was, dude didn't necessarily see eye to eye on a lot of things. And I, I said, do you, I said, you want to see Ashley? And she, she kind of gave me that, you just asked a stupid look or a stupid question look. And he was like, uh, yeah. And so I said, okay, I said, well, she's back up home. We'll bring her back down tomorrow. Um, so you can also see Ed and the boys, Ed is my brother-in-law and then my nephews. And so he, he started resting a little bit. Me and Jenny left, came back up. And it was the next morning, uh, I get a phone call from the hospital. And they said that, they said, your dad's still back in a coma. He's bleeding rectally and he's bleeding from his mouth. We need to take him to surgery to find out where exactly that bleeding is coming from. Now, naturally, I get I get mad, and I 
ask them why they're even on a phone with me and why they're not doing what they need to do. But hindsight's twenty twenty; they had to have some sort of permission anyway. Mm-hmm. So they take him back into surgery and they told me, they said, there should be about a 45 minute procedure. So you should be out by the time you get back down. There. I said, okay, we're on our way. It takes us two and a half to three hours to get down there. Closer to three at a time. Um, because we had to go through a town, uh, to get there. And three hours go by, we get back down there and he's not back in the ICU yet. I said, he's still in surgery, which was red flag. Number one, mm-hmm. They take us down to the, the surgery operating waiting room. And for another 45 minutes, we sat there. Red flag number two. Mm. Eventually, this team of doctors walks in. Red flag number three. And they said, are you the family of Scott Leeper? And we said, we are. I said, okay, well, the procedure we tried was a liver bypass procedure. However, his liver so scarred that um, the, the procedure didn't, uh, it wasn't effective. They said, now, there's another procedure we can try. However, because we had to give him eight units of blood, uh, his quality of life will be zero. Mm-hmm. We need to know what we need to do next. Well, I called my grandfather. He lived in Anderson, and that's where my dad's, that's who my dad stayed with. Phone was going on, and he said uh, two words, handle it. Wow. So I get off the phone, look at my sister, before I can get anything out, my sister tells me I can't make this decision. So now the decision lays on my shoulders. What seemed like 10 minutes was probably 10 seconds, but I'm sitting in a chair, my head in my hands, tears streaming. I mean, I'm, I'm losing it now because I know what I have to say. It was probably the hardest, easy decision I've ever had to make. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I told them, don't do the other procedure. I said, okay. We'll make him comfortable and we'll take him back up to ICU. So, you know, in, in my book, I'm, I'm making an analogy here. And in my book, what I felt like I just did, I kind of felt like that Roman emperor that, you know, gave the thumbs down to the gladiator to watch him die. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what I felt like. So we get back up to the room and um, they went on back up there, get them plugged back up to the, to the machines and everything. And, you know, we're trying to talk to them. Then he's talking to him. I'm talking to him. I try making light of the situation, telling him that if the Chicago Bears win a Super Bowl this year, I knew he was cheating. <laughs> and, um, you know, and eventually my sister looked at me and she goes, she goes, are you ready to go to the waiting room? I said, Jenny, I said, you guys go. I have to stay. If I'm making this decision, I have to stay here. I don't have a choice. And, you know, my thing was I wasn't going to leave dad to die by himself. If I have the opportunity to be here, then I'm going to, you know, I felt compelled to do so. So it was uh, it was me, her, and, and my wife that was in the room, and her and my wife left. So it was just me. And, you know, to kind of paint a picture for you, all you heard in that room were beeps, the ventilator pumping my dad's chest, the start of a death rattle, which if you've never heard of a death rattle, what a death rattle is, is basically when a person's dying, their lungs are filling up with fluid and it's a gurgling sound when they try to breathe. And then of course you heard, uh, I think it was 27 at the time, 27 year old, 29 year old man sobbing. Eventually I told the doctors it was time. So they asked me to step out. Now this is where it gets interesting because I stepped out and they closed the curtain so they could do what they needed to do, take them off the ventilator, all that stuff. But when they, when they closed the curtain, the other side of the curtain shifted, so there was still a gap uh, to where I could see into the room. And there was a nurse on his left, there was a nurse on his right. Now, the nurse on his right were shutting the machines off, and, you know, where his vital signs were, it's now a black screen. Um, and then they take the ventilator out, and the next thing I know, he wakes up out of his coma, hmm. and he starts reaching for the nurse to his right, trying to grab her. And I don't know if that's, you know, what are you doing giving back my breathing tube or it's okay, it's time for me to go. And I don't, I don't really question it. I'm pretty out of peace with what I saw at this point. And then the nurse on his left, he gave him an injection to make him comfortable because I'm sure part of that was a, was a physiological response because his lungs were on fire. Because yeah. he, he was suffocating, essentially. Yeah. And um, so then he, he went back to sleep. And, and then they came out and let me go back in and 
you know, it wasn't much long after that that um, he took his last breath. Well, that's where I was uh, the most affected by his addiction was from that point forward. Mm. Wow. Scott, thank you so much for sharing that story. I mean, it's powerful. It's really, really powerful. And I think it gives testimony as well to the effects of our actions are not just immediate, but they ripple for a long time. And there's a lot that you mentioned there. And and I'd love to dive in a little bit to the life of your father. And of course, you know, what I know about addiction and what I've learned is that it it often is essentially a band-aid for some very, very deeply rooted trauma that somewhere, somehow along the way was never really dealt with. And, you know, you mentioned this deeply rooted self-hatred within him. Where do you think that might have come from? Um... You know, it's, although he made people laugh, I think a part of it had to deal with uh, the narrative he had in his own mind about himself. Mm. And, you know, he, he my my grandfather was an alcoholic, and, and from what I hear, and I don't know this to be gospel, just from what I hear, uh, he was abusive at times, um, you know, when, when my dad was growing up, and so... Sometimes uh, it's learned behavior, and, and although the abuse wasn't learned behavior, he never beat me. Mm-hmm. He was never abusive towards me. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just he, he just turned that abuse internally and continued to abuse himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of that has to deal with lack of connection with self, lack of connection with others, especially others that are going to uh, empower you versus disempower you. Mm-hmm. Um and he had some good friends. I mean, I talked to a couple of them still to this day, one of which is, is dealing with uh, some familial addiction issues as well. But, you know, the thing is, it has to deal with uh, your container. There's a TED Talk, and it's titled something along the lines of almost everything we know about addiction is wrong, I think is how it's titled, mm. which is a pretty catchy title because you're like, wait a minute, there's all, kind of re- all kinds of research on addiction. Mm. But the thing is, he, he talks about the study they called Rat Park. So in Rat Park, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of this because I'm not, I, I don't know the full uh, study, but they had, they had two different cages. And in one cage, they had this, this, you know, this big grand cage with balls and cheese and wheels and, and lots of other rats and tunnels and colors and all kinds of things. And it was kind of like a paradise for rats. And they also had two different bowls of water. Now, one water was just one bowl of water was just your your just regular water, nothing else in it. But then there was another bowl of water where they laced it with uh, morphine, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Something pleasant for the rats. And, <laughs> right, exactly. And what they noticed was in this particular case, the rats they might go and test the water with the morphine on occasion, but they never went back to it. They never got hooked on it. Hmm. They always went and drank the regular water. Now, at the same time, there was another uh, container. And this time, this container was filled with uh, either one rat or a couple rats, two bowls of water, and nothing else. And these rats would go to the water with a, with a morphine, and they would quickly get hooked on it, and some would overdose, or some would just stay hooked on, on the morphine water. Mm. And what that signified was, um, you know, how he ended that conversation was, the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection. It brings up so many thoughts for me, and I'm, I'm so interested in diving a little bit more into this, and... It's amazing how we end up using vices when we are not feeling like our basic needs are being met. And you mentioned on the day when your father didn't show up and you went to his house, and when he got there, he was three sheets to the wind, 
And you got quite mad and said, you know, what the, what the hell are you doing, Dad? And, and you said, well, nobody loves me. You know, I'm nasty. I'm gross. And what that is telling me is that truly within him, you know, there's three basic needs for humans, right? There's the need to be loved, the need to be safe, and the need to be accepted. And if one of those three basic needs are threatened in any way, we will go to extremes to cope with that. And it seems even in this example of the rats, right, when they were almost living this meager and unfulfilled life, right? Full of really boredom, I would say. And just like you said, lack of connection, lack of deep and meaningful connections. They found this other way to entertain themselves or to feel connected to something other than their pain. And it's it's amazing to me how, I mean, especially when it's our parents that we're dealing with, you know, it, it can be really challenging, I think, to see our parents as somebody other than the person who is just supposed to love us and cherish us deeply forever, <laughs> you know, and never do any wrong by us. And when they do wrong by themselves, it trickles down to us. And then we start feeding this feeling of anger and it ripples on out. But even before I get to that question, I wanted to ask you, do you think your father, you know, this very intelligent man with this deep wisdom of computers and knowledge of technology, would he have considered himself then maybe a functioning alcoholic? And was he? Um, I would say he was functioning uh, up until a certain point. Before he moved in with my grandfather, uh, he, he actually landed a real good job with uh, Lakeland Medical Foundation or Lakeland Hospital, whatever it is, up in uh, St. Joe, Michigan, where he was, uh, from what I'm understanding, he was running their IT department. Now, that's a pretty big deal for a, for a hospital. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he, he moved into his own apartment up there, and things seemed to be going well. And all of a sudden, it was, Grandpa needs me to move in with him. I've already quit my job. I'm going to move down there. That kind of thing. But then there was a termination letter found eventually that was from Lakeland basically discussing his termination due to being under the influence. Mm. So essentially he was going to work drunk. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, you can... I don't even like using the term functioning alcoholic because you're not actually functioning. Sure, you might be existing. Sure, you might be doing your job, but are you actually functioning? No, because you're not functioning emotionally. You're not functioning psychologically. Mm -hmm. Anybody that learns that their job can do their job with their, you know, with, with their eyes closed, mm -hmm. especially when you've been doing it for years and years and years. I knew Marines that, uh, you know, they, they'd go run 5 o'clock in the morning after drinking until 2 in the morning. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that and your your opinions about, you know, the term functioning alcoholic. It seems almost <laughs> like an oxymoron, but it seems like such a common, maybe it's sort of a societally dismissive term or a way for everybody else to deal with the loved one who might be suffering in their lives, maybe. I, I'm not really sure. Oh, I could, I could absolutely see that as being yeah. used as an excuse well he's functioning he's not um you know he's not crashing his car and he's still going to work and paying his bills right okay well what's the deeper issue mm. <laughs> great okay so he's paying his bills he's going to work awesome what's the actual issue mm. you know there's there's a deeper seated issue here and the thing is you know you know going back to this whole choice versus disease thing Frankly, it doesn't really matter because the bottom line is addiction is a surface issue. There is always a deeper rooted issue. There's something below the surface that people are trying to know. Mm -hmm. So are you actually functioning? No, of course not. I love that. And it's, it's so true. And, and in my personal experience with loved ones with addictions and, you know, it's, it took time, I think, for me personally, and I, and I hope you don't mind me sharing, to sort of put my own emotions to the side and really look at uh, my loved ones with addiction and say, okay, you know, this is nothing to do with me. <laughs> 
this this is and this doesn't make you a, a bad person, but you really are dealing with some deeply rooted trauma. And earlier you mentioned you know this generational trauma, right? So you mentioned that your father was abused, you know, stories that you heard, your grandfather. And it's funny to think back to generationally, you know, what parenting was like back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. (laughs) But things that seem to be okay probably have now rippled. And I'm, I'm grateful that we live in a time or a conscious society where we're willing to really look at that and say, okay, how can we rewrite the script? But I'm curious, shifting gears a little bit, for you, Scott... You know, what What was it like for you that day? You know, you mentioned younger experiences, you know, when you were two years old, you know, these sort of implementation of trauma along the way of your life. But it seemed like even before your dad went to the hospital, when he didn't show up for you that day and you ended up having to go to his house, can you walk us a little bit yeah. through that emotion, that first emotion of, well, that's, you know, he's not here. And then subsequently, when you did show up and see why he wasn't there, can you share with us a little bit how that felt? Honestly, at the time, it was more just frustration because, you know, again, we didn't talk for two and a half years. And so I didn't quite know what to expect. Um, You know, if you've ever experienced the, you know, where maybe it's a friend or or a, you know, a closer distant relative, we haven't talked to him for two and a half years because it was a falling out and now you guys are ready to start making amends. You just don't really quite know what to, what to expect. You're, you're you're a little apprehensive. There's a little bit of curiosity, but at the same time, a little bit of um, anxiety behind it. And um, you know, and so just when he didn't show up, I'm like, it, it was almost like a you know, I could have guessed this. Go figure. Mm. You know, we ain't talked for two and a half years. We make amends, and now you don't want to come down here. You know, that's kind of where that's kind of where my where my mind was. Uh, went it wasn't um you know it wasn't that oh he didn't choose me again or mm-hmm. nothing like that it was just uh uh almost like a yep i called it i should i, I could have called this one kind of thing yeah, um sort of expected essentially absolutely i'm sure it kind of cemented a lot of those deeply rooted beliefs that you know or feelings that have been festering or growing inside of you for for many many years and you know i mentioned generational trauma and i'm kind of building up to you know it's this falling out over 250 dollars and the frustration that you felt but almost that like self-fulfilling prophecy like yep i sort of knew this was going to happen so seeing your father's experience is absolutely traumatic and the relationship that you guys had seemed turmoiled from a very, very, very young age. And do you think that that frustration within yourself kind of led to, made it easier for a falling out to happen? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that our our, our relationship was turmoiled from a very young age because mm. when I was able to spend time with him, I mean, I, I loved hanging out with my dad. I mean, we took we we went on fishing trips to Minnesota with my grandfather, and, and um, that's actually where his ashes are spread is on the lake that we went to all the time mm-hmm. as a kid. We we took a fishing trip to Canada one year, which was which was just, you know one of my favorite childhood experiences. And um, you know, so I, I have a lot of great memories with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I want to I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, okay. We didn't hate each other, uh, but you know, as a young adult. Um, you know, and, and, and him, me being a hot headed young adult and, and him, you know, having the issues he had and, and trying to keep certain things covered and, um, you know, but eventually like, and so the 250 bucks, basically what happened there to kind of expand on that a little bit. Uh, so before I got married, um, me and him had a joint cell phone account. When I got married, we had split the account. And all he had to do was go in and sign a paperwork with his social security number, all that fun, all that stuff. And well, the thing is, he never did that. And so eventually, uh, I had a credit report done, and it came back that I had a, a two hundred fifty dollars judgment against me from the cell phone carrier. Mm. And I immediately knew what that was. And you know, I called my dad, and you know, I lost my mind on him, and that was it. And I hadn't talked to him after that. Mm. you know so again very trivial I mean you know it was 250 bucks that was on my credit report not even 
in, out of pocket kind of thing. It, you know, there was, I had to do a settlement of like 180 bucks, but, you know, but, but that's, that's beside the point. But anyway, I kind of went down a rabbit hole. What was the question again? That's okay. I'm just curious, really, the, the reason why I bring this up, because I'm interested in talking about the generational trauma and to see how... Yeah. Your father's pain, which obviously came from somewhere else, you know, far beyond even what we know or could possibly comprehend, and seeing how it has affected your life and subsequently maybe led to, you know, you mentioned you might have, it was a combination of you kind of being hot-headed and then a little bit proud, but then also I would I would venture to say that, you know, of course you guys didn't have bad blood, but that that quick to anger, that quick to frustration was rooted somewhere, right? Your subconscious mind might have been maybe validating some of the anger or pain that you were then feeling seeing your dad go through this experience. So, you know, fast forward a little bit now to your father being in the hospital and you said something really intriguing to me and you said it was the hardest easy decision of your life to help him transition. And you know, the question building up to that is, you know, this this generational trauma and how it then affected you to then get to a point where this very hard yet also easy decision. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? You know, I I say the hardest easy decision, or you can even say the easiest hard decision, Mm. you know, uh, however you want to say it, but there was a, there was an ease and difficulty to it either way. And that's because, um, I don't know anybody that would want to have to live on machines and literally just exist in a bed hooked up to machines. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't about to put him through that. I sure as hell wouldn't want that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say it was the easiest, hard decision. I was a person that had to say, do it. And that ultimately ended his life. But then again, I, you know, I, I know that he wouldn't want to, you know, just exist in a hospital bed. I understand now. I I completely understand it. I mean, that you know your father well enough, you know, beautifully to know that he wouldn't want that life. So I I completely understand now. So let's take one more step forward here, if you don't mind. So here you are now. You've had this, I want to say turmoiled experience, right? So again, it's, it's interesting when we reflect on trauma because I can see how oftentimes we start to go down this sort of compare and despair spiral. Well, you know, I wasn't abused, but, you know, other people have it worse, but, you know, we start to kind of compare our experiences with others. And I I really would just love to offer to you, Scott, like, this was definitely traumatic. So how has this affected your, your life now? So let's take a step forward in talking about your life and then the subsequent things that have happened. I know you share in your book a little bit after your dad passed away, there were experiences in your life that were trademarks to leading up to the amazing things that you're doing today. So would you mind giving us a little brief on on what happened after? Yeah. So earlier I said this is really where, you know, I I, the start of me being affected by his addiction began. And that Mm. was, um, you know, at the time of his death, my wife was six months pregnant. And so three months later, here comes my son. And of course, you know, it was a bittersweet moment because now I'm a father, but my dad will never have the opportunity. I will never have the opportunity to see my dad hold my son. Mm. And that was a very painful thing uh, for me to deal with. But it goes much further than that. So within his, my son's first year of life, I started having an affair with my wife. And, um, you know, I, I, I had a very big victim mentality of blaming everybody else for the things that were going on with me. Life was happening to me. Um, you know, victimness, negativity, that, you know, after having the affair, I told her that I wanted a divorce and you wouldn't have told me any differently. Mm. Eventually, um, you know, she moved back up here to Indiana and I was still stationed down in Camp Lejeune and the command had, uh, found out about the affair and, and so now I'm going through a command investigation. And to make that long story short, I ended up getting separated from the Marine Corps with an other than honorable discharge. And at the time, I was a criminal investigator. And so I would lose my top secret clearance altogether. And I'd never wear a badge again. Because with another than honorable discharge, police departments, federal agencies are not going to hire you. 
and, and basically the reason behind that is it calls integrity into question if I ever have to get on the stand. So it makes sense. But before getting separated from the Marine Corps, my wife and I started talking again. Uh, we essentially started a courtship over and, and, you know, and we worked things back out. And that was a long road itself. There were plenty of times after getting kicked out, moved back up here, there were plenty of times where I had to sit on the couch and listen to her tell me that she still kind of hates me and that she still doesn't trust me. Mm. And I had to just take it. Um, you know, I couldn't fight back because, well, I made that bet, and so I got to lay in it. And so, you know, but we had worked things back out, and, and you know, now it's, you know, we're both doing deep work on ourselves. You know, I had been through a couple jobs, and, and uh, the first job I worked for a staffing company, because when I got out, I was like, all right, I know I want to help people in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So started helping people find jobs, and so this is where I, I, I started to learn that um, I had the talent for finding job, jobs that I sucked at. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so after about 10 months, I got fired that, from that job. And then I went and worked for uh, Salvation Army. And I was running about the thrift shops. But the thing that I loved most was those thrift shops actually funded a rehab facility. Mm. And I had the opportunity to speak to the men in the rehab facility and I had guys in tears, and I had guys come up to me and tell me that I spoke to them on a level nobody's ever spoke to them on. And, you know, one of the analogies I gave them was I kind of fit this description there for a while. And, and that was, you know, these guys, it was an all men's facility. And I asked these guys from the streets, anywhere, anywhere from being incarcerated, being in gangs, to working in restaurants as cooks, to office personnel, I mean, just just a wide variety of different men from different, you know, different walks of life. And I asked them one day, I said, let me ask you guys a question. We were walking down the street and I would have walked past you on the sidewalk and I punched you in the face and I kicked you in the gut and got you on the ground. And I started punching you. I kept kicking you. Are you going to stay in a fetal position and take it? Or are you going to stand up and fight back? And you've seen some of these guys start to bow up and I, I just challenged their manhood, so now they're ready to fight. Mm. And they bowed up, and they're like, we'll, we'll, we'll fight. We'll fight back. Well, good. Then why are you staying in a fetal position when life is kicking you while you're down? Mm. That's powerful. And I kind of, you, you saw light bulbs go off across the room, and... That was the first time that I that I thought to myself, like, wow, I, I've got something here. I've got a message. Mm. And I need to share this message. And eventually they closed that rehab facility down and sent everything to Gary, which is about an hour and a half west of here. So now I'm stuck running with the thrift stores. Now, anybody that really knows me knows that I don't do retail. Mm. I'm not a fan of retail <laughs> whatsoever. Not my thing. And so eventually I resigned and I moved on and I went and worked in, worked in an office, thought I would chase money, not my thing. I need to chase fulfillment. And so after I got fired from that job, I went and became a personal trainer. Now I became a personal trainer because when I was working for, in the office job, uh, I started competing bodybuilding competitions and I did two that year. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to follow this. I'm going to go get my personal training certification. With, for about a year, I was a personal trainer at a gym, but my personal training sessions started turning into coaching sessions. Mm. So I'm like, hmm. okay, maybe I need to look into this whole life coach thing. <laughs> and then that's where HCI popped up, you know, almost instantaneously. Good job, Eric Nooner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looked into it and... and uh, a couple months before I left that gym, I started my uh, certification courses. I branched out on my own as a personal trainer for a brief time, and, and within a couple months, I moved into coaching specifically. And then, so I, I, I started to establish that. And one day I was sitting in the shared workspace that I was working in, and it just, something hit me. I've I actually attempted to write a book when I was a kid and I lost the notebook I was writing in 
And instead of starting over, I just never tried it again. But something hit me that day, and I said, I got to write a book, but I got to co author this book with somebody else. Mm. This is when I, I thought of Michael Arnold and Andrea Carr. Now Michael, I met Michael at HCI Live April 18th. Mm-hmm. And she had gotten on stage and she was talking about the characteristics of of an addict and she was explaining, you know, the person's, you know, passing the blame and, and, you know, not taking responsibility and all these other things. And Carrie was the one that was coaching her, I'm pretty sure. And she said, uh, who are you, who are you describing right now? And Michael welled up in tears and got extremely emotional. And she says, I'm talking about myself. Mm. And she said that she's been sober for, I can't remember how long, but she's been sober for a while now. Mm-hmm. And the place erupted for it because, I mean, that's huge. And I instantly felt connected to her because of my story. Mm-hmm. And so I made a feline tour when we had a break. And I said, listen, you don't know me from Adam, but I got to give you a hug because I am extremely proud of you for the mountains that you've moved. Because so many people cannot move those mountains. Mm-hmm. And then Andrea had actually reached out to me after the fact and asked me to be on her podcast. Uh, to discuss my dad's story, um, and, and we just talked. Uh, we even talked about uh, addiction within the military and within the uh, first responder ranks, you know. And, and it was a very good, very good conversation. And so when I'm sitting there, I was like, okay, I need to write a book. I have to ask Michael and Andrea if they want to write a book with me. Mm. And when I sent the message, it was instant, right? <laughs> Instant response from both of them. Absolutely, let's make this happen. Let's do this. And and so you know, within we, I think August was when we started really talking and and, and co-creating. And March of this past year was when the book launched. Um, so you know, very quick turnaround time to write a book. I'm so proud and so excited to see this quick turnaround and. You know, what's really coming through for me, I, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, what was the turning point for you? And you, you sort of answered that question organically. You know, you, you mentioned that you had this sort of victim mindset and, you know, life was happening to me and all these, you know, you were going down this path of destruction and your, your marriage was under turmoil. And, you know, it, it seems to me that there wasn't, I mean, there was a few key pivotal moments, but what I'm hearing you actually say is that you really just kept putting one foot in front of the other and trusting your gut along the way to lead you in the right path. And in doing so, it actually led you to exactly where you needed to be, who you needed to meet at the exact right time. So, you know, and you had this instant gut feeling, this inspiration, this sort of clear cognizant understanding that you needed to write a book so you know this rather than you know asking what was the pivotal moment may I ask you what what was the motivation to really just be able to trust yourself and to trust this journey and trust the path that eventually led you down to co-authoring a book which I'm so excited to ask you one or two more questions about that in just a minute so John Stevenson said it best. He said, would you believe it if I told you kids don't listen to you? (laughs) No. Naturally, any one of us that have kids thoroughly understand that point. (laughs) But he took it a step further and he said, they watch you. Even when we don't think they are, they are paying close attention, much closer than what we think. (laughs) And the one thing that one of the big things that came out of my dad's death for me was it is now my life's mission to do better than my dad did. And that's to be every child's goal to do better than their parents did. Mm. I hope Jackson far exceeds anything I've ever done, Mm. which is going to be a tall task because I'm, pretty ambitious guy. <laughs> <laughs> because you're killing it. I um, love that. And, you know, I can really relate to that too. And even 
as the child, you know, I, I, we often forget what it was like to be children, right? We're, we're adults for the majority of our lives. We're, we're children for such yeah. a small glimpse of it. And, you know, I remember even my father saying to me, you know, do as I say, not as I do, and just truly feeling deeply conflicted by that and so confused. And I mean, I don't need to go down that journey or that relationship yeah. with him, but truly reflecting back as a child, I remember watching and really knowing, knowing what was going on and, and asking questions and getting false answers. And then also understanding that, you know, my parents were trying to protect me and that maybe is why they gave me white lies every now and again, or maybe not so white lies, you know, so like just full blown lies to protect me. But even as the words were coming out of their mouths, I knew it. So, you know, to circle it back around to that generational trauma, I commend you for breaking that, you know, that which generations prior to you were not able to do. And I think it is our calling, like you said, it is it is our necessity in life to do better. <laughs> and I think, yeah. you know, even amongst the turmoil, amongst the trauma, it's it's very easy to fall into the victim mindset. And we don't need to know why, you know, we don't need to know why things are happening in our life. But what matters is that we have the motivation or ambition to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And how beautiful that you did that. And now look what you're doing. You're changing lives. You're creating ripples. You know, you've really alchemized your experience in life. And not many people are able to do that. So, you know, for the person who might be listening right now and realizing that something needs to change, maybe they're on a journey of addiction or maybe they're related to someone who they love who's on this journey or in one way or another, they're feeling victimized by their circumstances. Do you have any actionable steps or tools for our listeners today to maybe start the journey to whether it's sobriety or even just really giving permission to trust ourselves, which is really what I see you have done with your life? Is there any tips or tricks that you might be able to share for someone who's just like, what the heck are these two people talking about right now? <laughs> yeah. So I'll start with the person that's maybe struggling, whether it's addiction or just life is quote unquote happening to them. So they think, and what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to bring Sean back up again. Sean Stevenson. So for those of you that don't know, Sean Stevenson is a well-known speaker. Um, he was a psychotherapist and um, he impacted so many people. Mm. If you get a chance, look him up. He had actually just recently passed away and his last words were the words that I share with people constantly in that his words were, this happened for me, not to me. And so where you see life as happening to you, I can promise you life is actually happening for you. But I'm going to take it a step further. You see, think back to when we were kids. When we were kids, our elbow would hurt, our back would hurt, our knee would hurt. But it wasn't an injury, and our parents called it growing pains, right? Mm. Well... As adults, we also have growing pains. But there's two differences here. The first difference is it's a psychological growing pain. It's an emotionally, emotional growing pain. The second difference is this is a choice now. We choose to grow from it or we choose to continue viewing it as happening to us. It's your choice. Life is happening for you, not to you. You're going to get tested. You're going to have scars. You're going to have bumps and bruises along the way, but I promise you one thing, nobody gets out of this life unscarred. Nobody. You will have physical scars. You will have emotional scars. And here's the thing. Think about the physical scars. You get a cut on your arm, and that scar heals up. And now that skin is much tougher. Psychological scars do the same thing. Don't let it make you bitter. Let it make you better. Let it make you tough. Let it make you get tougher. And by tougher, I don't mean becoming negative. I mean being more empathetic, being more compassionate, because 
other people are going through what she's been through. And we also don't know what other people are going through. Mm -hmm. Even if they're being mean towards us, even if they're being jerks towards us, it has nothing to do with us, but it's a reflection of their reality. So if you're going through a struggle, understand that this is happening for you. You don't have to know the answer. You just have to know that it's happening for you and continue putting one step in front of the other. Continue making 1% of proven a day. Mm. Now, for the family member that might be dealing with a loved one who has an addiction issue, first and foremost, stop giving them money. <laughs> but Scott, what if, what if, what if they, you know, what if they get evicted from their house? Good. Well, but what if they get mad at me and then they go and commit suicide? Or what if they get mad at me and go and overdose? The money you're giving them, they're more than likely already putting into their liver, into their nose, or into their arm. Your money is not helping them, it's harming them. The best thing that a loved one can do is simply be present for that person. Tell them I love you. I see you. I'm here for you. I cannot give you money, but I will do everything I can to help you without money. Maybe that looks like going to rehab. Sometimes kicking them out is the best way to help them. And that sounds extremely harsh, extremely unempathetic, but here's why that might be very helpful. I read this, this uh, article. It was actually Money Magazine. Of all magazines, Money Magazine, the December, eight, uh, December 18 issue. There was a 70-year-old uh, couple came up to a guy that was running a PAL chapter in Phoenix. And PAL stands for Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. And they asked, they told him, they said, listen, we've got this, our, our son is, is, you know, 52, whatever he was. And... You know, he's, he's got an addiction problem. We pay, we, we pay his rent. We pay for his vehicle. We pay for his insurance. He's not getting any better, and we can't understand why. And he says it's very simple. Because he doesn't have to. Mm. You are not allowing them to hit their rock bottom. Let them feel their rock bottom. Mm. So those would be the few things that I would share with, with both sides mm -hmm. um, that may be dealing with struggles or addiction. It's so powerful. And Scott, we speak all of the same language. <laughs> and it's so interesting. I mean, it's truly the root of a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset, right? And some people might just say, oh, well, words are just vernacular. And that that's just so not true for me. You know, words resonate. And I too often always say, you know, this, this is happening for me. And that is what has allowed me to get through times of struggle. And it doesn't mean to, it doesn't mean that you're never going to feel pain. It just means even amongst the pain, there is a deeply seated trust in the bigger picture, right? Life is happening for me. And you are a perfect example of that and how you've alchemized and, and, ventured on your own transition, really, kind of from that hot-headed teen to a, a author, a published author, and a speaker, and an, and an inspired speaker, which is amazing. And I just really, really am so appreciative of your time, your vulnerability, your experience here today. And I lost my train of thought a little bit because really it just, it's it's so true. And it can take so much strength and willpower. That's what I wanted to say. You know, for the person who is listening to this, to understand that the journey doesn't have to be, you don't have to do it on your own, right? You don't have to do it by yourself. And in fact, I wouldn't encourage that, right? So if you are on that journey and you say, right, well, I just love this person, for example, like you said, you know, I, I, I want to support them. I don't want to stop giving them money. You know, it can be important to remember that we are all here to learn very important lessons in life. And it can be really empowering to remember that if we were to take somebody else's lessons away from them, they never will be able to venture through the storm, right? So 
one of my taglines that I always come back to is the best thing that we can do for our loved ones is to simply be the lighthouse, right? So it takes strength to stand in that storm and simply shine brightly for the person who's in the storm to navigate their way safely to land. But if you were to just plop in and and pull that person out of their storm, the next time they experience a storm, they'll never be able to navigate their way out. So just like you said, give them permission to experience rock bottom. That's how they will be able to find their way to the light, right? So I share this because it's not easy, right? And it's important to remember that in order to take our power back in certain circumstances that we are feeling victimized with due diligence, you know, with with good reason, seek support, seek help. And that leads me to one of my last final questions, you know, where where can our listeners find you if they're saying, "Man, I need I need help right now." <laughs> where where should they go? Yeah. So I want to add one thing to what you were just saying there about being the lighthouse. Yeah. Um, the Coast Guard, one of the things they teach their, their rescue divers is you can't rescue those that won't swim towards you. Mm. And so this goes right into that. Mm-hmm. If your family member does not want the help, there's nothing you can do to give them the help. Even more reason to make them feel rock bottom. I just want to add that piece. But um, yeah. And how beautiful that, you know, it's so synchronistic. The name of your book, Sink or Swim, Drowning in Addiction. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a choice. Absolutely. It's a choice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you can find me. You can you can email me at scottleeper at mindmusclestrength.com. I'm in the process of creating a website. Hopefully we'll have it launched here within the next couple of weeks at mindmusclestrength.com. Mm. And then you can also find me on... Uh, Facebook as uh, Scott Leaper, or you can look up my page, Mind Muscle Strength. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at the underscore Scott Leaper. Um, and it's L E E P E R. I should spell that. I can't jump. <laughs> um, I don't know what else. I think that pretty much covers it. And then you can find the book on Amazon. Uh, you can find it on Barnes and Noble. Uh, there's paperback, there's hardcover. Uh, there's, um, there's also the ebook edition. You can find that on the Google play store, the Apple iBook store, Nook, Kindle, uh, yeah, it's pretty much everywhere. Amazing. And I'll be sure to link all of these websites in the podcast notes. So it'll be easy to find. And I love just to wrap up all of my podcast with one final question, of course, I love the word health because it has the word heal in it, right? And really the journey to health, and you mentioned this you know, when you were talking about getting beat up by life and choosing to stand up and fight or staying in the fetal position, but really this journey to healing on all the different layers and aspects of our life pies, it's, you have to be relentless in the pursuit of it, right? So I'd love to ask you, what does optimal health, the term optimal health, mean to you, Scott? Optimal, optimal health is a marathon, not a sprint. Hmm. Optimal health has more to do with just the aesthetics of a six-pack. Optimal health has more to do than just what you do in the gym. Optimal health is mind, body, spirit, the connection of the three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say that because I see some of the, some people in, in the gym that I go to look like they should be on the cover of GQ magazine. Just phenomenal looking people, men and women. Problem is, I also know them, and they're some of the most depressed people in this area. Mm-hmm. You go to the gym for the escape, and that's a much better place to go than the bar. But their optimal, their health is not optimal because it's only in the physical form. Their emotional health is is extremely lacking. Their spiritual health is extremely lacking, if if, if even existent whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so, optimal health is a connection to mind, body, and spirit, and and what you're doing to improve those three areas. Amazing, I love that, and it really sheds a little bit of light. And you know the. Th- theme of this sober October for this month is it's so beautiful that you mentioned that because addiction can show in all different kinds of ways. So thank you again, Scott, today for sharing with us your experience of how it has affected your life. 
the alchemy of your trauma and really the tools that you've shared today. I really, really, really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. to take a quick moment to give you, my community of listeners, some genuine appreciation. I know how valuable and precious our time is in today's world of productivity, and I couldn't be more grateful for yours today. If you feel that this episode was of value to you, I would be even more grateful if you were to share it with your people. Go ahead and copy and paste that link into messages, or if you're feeling really creative, pop a screenshot of the episode into your Instagram stories and send it on over to that person in your life who might need this boost of inspiration today. Don't forget to tag the podcast handle Let's Start Health and my personal account, The Yogi Yachty, so we can have all the fun connecting, building community, and sharing all the things. Thank you again, and remember, be curious and unwavering on this journey to health.